Today, I'm really excited to have Brennan Woodruff on the podcast. Brennan is the co-founder and COO of GoCharlie.ai, a new generative AI company that helps content creators and entrepreneurs create content that will perform. Prior to GoCharlie, Brennan was a VP at SoftBank Investment Advisors, a manager of technical revenue, product and strategy at Uber, and a manager of deal advisory at KPMG. He is also an investor and advisor at Space Venture, which provides first mile capital to space startups. Having Brendan on the podcast is really cool because you have to see some of the creative ways that people are using generative AI APIs in order to take cumbersome workflows and make it much smarter. It was also great to get Brendan's expertise as an investor and as somebody who has been in the industry for a while, because I know for myself, it can be a little hard to find out what in generative AI will stick around after this hype phase is done. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hello, Brennan, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Perfect. Well, let's get started. So from the starting off, what got you into entrepreneurship and, and what led you down this path? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll start where any good story uh, starts with my, my parents. So uh, growing up, both my parents were entrepreneurs. My, my mom is a professional painter. Uh, none of that creativity seemed to have uh, passed along to me, but I enjoyed her business pursuits. And my dad was a real estate appraiser. Um, and so everybody thought that I was going to be an architect, including myself, to really like round out the family's uh, home offering, but I decided uh, instead to take a path of finance, and um, that took me to KPMG, that took me to Uber, that took me to SoftBank, and you know I, I think finance is a very admirable pursuit, and it, for a lot of people, it's making a lot of money. But I mm-hmm. kind of always had this like nagging voice in the back of my head of like I, I have a little bit more in me than what this this finance accounting life is is using from my brain. I, I felt that. One of my gifts was public speaking. One of my gifts was um, being able to connect with people and, and see like what their problems were and help them engineer solutions for it. Uh, now, I didn't go down the path of engineering, but I finally came to the realization that that went best to entrepreneurship uh, because it, it, if, if I sit back and I look at like how, you know, people always ask a question of like, how do you know that you lived a good life? Like, how are you going to measure that you lived a good life? And for me, that meant, making meaningful impact on the largest number of people's lives possible. I think that that's kind of the the measuring stick that I use. And entrepreneurship gives you that vehicle if, if done correctly. Uh, and, and more importantly, entrepreneurship plus, you know, that willingness to take the leap and in, in, in tackle big scale problems, I think uh, that allows me to do that. So so for me, it was really a story of it was in my blood all along. It was just me finally heeding the call and taking that plunge uh, on my birthday of last year. Oh, well, wow. okay. Yeah, no, makes a lot of sense. And I think um, I think one one really interesting point you mentioned there is just the ability to to be like to make an impact that you feel like you should be making and and, and to and to make that impact on onto a sector of the population that you feel like needs it. I think those yeah. are two really important things there. Uh, and that's definitely something a lot of entrepreneurs, I feel like that's one of the biggest reasons they decide to join and become an entrepreneur. Yeah. In, you know, don't get me wrong. I think there's so many career paths where you can make impact. And I, I've probably spent way too many time or way too much time that I would like to admit thinking about like, well, there's the one path where you just get really rich and successful and you can direct all the resources to make the impact you want. And then there's the other path where like, you don't make a whole lot of money, but you're working for a nonprofit and you're seeing like the day-to-day impact. And and I, I finally came to this realization of like, there's an in-between path where you can both have monetary success if that's what you want and make meaningful impact and like see that impact on a day-to-day basis. Um, I, like so many people have introduced community into products nowadays that I feel like community-led product growth is like kind of lost a lot of its meaning. But for me, community is actually that vehicle to like see the impact in a very real way, a very quick and rapid way. And in doing so, like that fuels you because there's days where like it, entrepreneurship is just rough in having that like immediate community you can go to and be like, hey, I'm not feeling it today. Or, hey, we got a bad decision on like this product. 
and the community doesn't give a crap about what's going on with the product that day. They're just there to like be a part of that journey with you. It's so cool to see that. Like I never got that. I, I was working at one of the largest venture capital funds in the world, which is making arguably some of the largest impact you can possibly make by giving out billions of dollars on the daily, it seemed. I never felt the way that I felt when I had a rough day and was like working with our community. And so I think that is, that's the ultimate joy of entrepreneurship is, is that impact, whether or not people want to admit it. Some people do it for the money, but I find it rare that <clears throat> that's going to power you to the heights that you want to go. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, before we get into the product uh, <laughs> and, the, and the next venture, um, I, I had a quick question actually. So I, I yeah, you, you sort of mentioned this, but you know, you hop between investment roles and, and, and building roles. Um, and so I was just wondering like, what initially got you into investment and um, and then what led, led you ultimately coming back to a building role? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what originally took me to investment, obviously like the, the money equation comes into, comes into play, but let's leave that aside right. because I think the money thing is mostly just a byproduct of like, I came from small town, Indiana, you know, my family did what did well for themselves. I was never wanting for, for much, but like I had never experienced like coastal elite wealth until I actually lived there. And so like m money was a, a bit of a driver for it. Uh, but I, I think for me, like the allure of being an investment professional is one be, getting to be on the bleeding edge of of what's coming of of the potential that humanity is potentially creating uh but two i you know this this may sound bad but there's a power part to it where it's like i have the fundamental ability to give thumbs up or thumbs down on like a vision of the future that this company could potentially make a reality and like that to me was so so cool like i was talking to a venture investor the other day on a pitch call we spent the first 10 minutes talking about his current portfolio just because I thought the companies they invested in were so cool. And like one of them is inventing a way to identify through your clothing if you have a weapon on you to prevent, you know, police officers from shooting people that are trying to get something that's not a weapon out of their pocket with technology that already exists. So like the fact that they as a venture investor are investing in a solution to potentially a problem that doesn't maybe necessarily have the biggest financial outcome, but could fundamentally change how society works is pretty incredible. And so for me, that's what allured me about the investment role uh, was, was that potential to make bets on the future that you want to participate in. But what I came to realize is like, that just wasn't me. Um, <laughs> like I, I love, I love that vision of the future thing where my eyes started to glaze over was sitting behind an Excel spreadsheet and just <laughs> cranking numbers and like changing yeah. the scenarios and doing all this. And like, if Bitcoin's at this price, how much is this company valued at? It, it, for me, it was like, the, it, and maybe that's just like late stage, like growth equity investing. Like you have to be a little bit more numbers driven. And a lot of people would argue that SoftBank should have been even more numbers driven. But uh, for, for me, that just wasn't it. Like I, I like meeting new people. I like interacting. I like creating visions of the future. And, um, you know, I got a taste of that in my role at Uber because I was working so closely with a lot of the product teams and at KPMG, I was more of a consultant, so it wasn't as close, but I think the Uber role versus the SoftBank role, I just got to see like the actual hands-on impact side. And I was like, I want more of that. I want more right. of like, what do users want? What do your customers want? And let's go and build it and be a part of that journey. Then I did the, I'm going to give you some money and 10 years from now it might pay off. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of VC firms do have like, it depends on the VC firm you're, you're, you're getting investments with, but a lot of them do have more hands-on, uh, more hands-on approach while some of them more hands-off. But yeah. even then there's, there's only so far you can go right at the end of the day. It's an investment in the company, but the people who are building the product are going to be the ones defining it. Yeah, so that yeah, makes and, a lot of sense. And I think like definitely some firms have a more hands-on experience, but it, at least in my experience, the firms where they had like the the VCs like super super hands-on, like in the day to day, that was that's usually an indication that something was wrong, like right. some something got messed up or someone cooked the books or like someone really screwed something up. 
And so like the VC had to come in and figure it out. Not to say that that's always a bad thing, because sometimes it's necessary to have someone that can be that ruthless and like right the ship. Like if you look at WeWork, I think what Marcelo Coeur did was just unbelievable. Uh, like he would have brought them back from the dead. But for the most part, if your VC is getting way too involved in the day to day, probably isn't the best situation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and most founders that I've talked to don't really want the VC that involved. If they, if they do, then, you know, they usually find a consultant or the VC refer somebody, but yeah, that, that was it for me. I know plenty of people that are on the other side of the fence <clears throat> that are like, yeah, you know, that sounds really hard. I would rather make a ton of different bets and one of them will explode, then make one bet and potentially that explodes and you're done. So right. it's, it all depends on risk tolerance. Right. Makes sense. Well, let's get into it. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you, you know, I, I'm sure, I, I, of course, all, all entrepreneurs are really passionate about their products. So I'm, I'm sure you're really ready to get into it. Uh, wow. So let's talk about building GoCharlie. And um, just to give our viewers a little bit of context, it's an all-in-one application that uses AI in order to offer next generation content. It's a next generation content platform yeah. uh, using generative AI. And it was number one on Product Hunt when you guys launched, which is super, super exciting. Yeah. Uh, I know uh, I've talked to a couple of people who have launched on Product Hunt before, and they all mentioned that when you click that button for submit and you're just waiting, <laughs> you're just slowly waiting. It's it's pretty nerve wracking. So. Well, and it, it, it goes off at like 12.05 a.m. Pacific. Yeah. So I was like, do I stay up and try to like get an initial push of people or do like I go to sleep and wake up in an absolute freaking panic? Just like, oh my God, we have so many click-throughs. Uh, fortunately, two of our founders are Greek. So we got like a really great push from Greece out the gate. And then that kind of helped us get momentum as we went. But yeah, it, it, waking up the day of a product hunt launch is a scary experience. Let me tell you, especially if it's taken off because you have like 400 emails that you don't know what they are and you're trying to navigate those. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, so let's start from the beginning then. So what was the motivation behind creating this product? Yeah. So I, um, kind of back into that, that story of like me taking the plunge. Cause, uh, for, for those that haven't derived it yet, I, I left the SoftBank vision funds, uh, around November of last year. Uh, but prior to that, I was actually advising this company, um, the two founders. So there's two AI PhDs, uh, they build AI models themselves. Uh, and really, I met them right around when GPT-3 was uh, becoming an API-able service uh, yeah. from OpenAI. Those that aren't familiar, GPT-3 is a very powerful text generation technology that's been used as a backbone for the likes of Jasper. Many people have already seen ChatGPT come out now, which is a really cool chat-based interface for, for AI. Um, but really, I met these two. And... One, the first thing I noticed is that they kind of had a chip on their shoulders. You know, we're not from Ivy League schools. I went to Indiana, which is a pretty quality caliber business school now. Um, but we all kind of had this chip on our shoulder. We were from small towns, but we were punching above our weight. And they sold me on the potential of this technology to to create a custom content experience uh, for the, both for the business that creates the content, but for also for the end user. So at the time, one of the things I fell in love with was the potential of the technology for like, let's say you wanted to view an article by ESPN and I wanted to view an article by ESPN and you like more stats driven information. And I like more Twitter thread, witty, like punny type material. Generative AI in the long run has the potential to adjust the same piece of content to those preferences. And so I fell in love with that idea because I was like, that's just, that's next level stuff. Uh, yeah. It still hasn't come yet. But I was like, that's really cool. I would love to be a part of building something like that. And I see the value in it. And so we've kind of, uh, you know, they finished up some of the work that they were doing. And then I jumped in in January. We brought on a CTO. Uh, but really, you know, that was the potential of the technology that the, the motivation behind building this is everyone freaking hates marketing. And man, I got to tell you, after dealing with eight, a couple different agencies in the early days, because I was trying to build some infrastructure for the company, like the marketing industry is slimy. It's so slimy. And I don't know of a single industry other than maybe like the big three consulting firms where you can get away with just being completely wrong and just say, oh, yeah, it, it wasn't our fault. <laughs> 
And I, like I, I sit there and I like you see the breakdown in management fees uh, for these agencies or for any sort of marketing service. And the amount that actually goes to like paid ad spend is like 10%. And the rest is just service provision. Like I don't, I don't need to pay you, you know, two grand a month to log into my Facebook account and answer questions. I can do that myself. I can create a Facebook community. You don't need to charge me $5,000 for that. <laughs> Great. You can give me some strategy. That's awesome. But what are you doing that's bringing people in the door? And I, I think that that originally I created this because everybody has a marketing problem. Everybody needs to grow their business. Everybody needs to create content these days. And everybody needs to find a way to create content at a price that makes sense so that they can focus on the actual core business itself. But now I'm doing it because the marketing industry is awful and we deserve a better brand of marketing for businesses. I would love nothing more than for a small business to sign up for our product, not know anything about AI, but be able to create customized content for their Facebook campaign, their blogs, anything that they want to write. And they bring a couple customers in the door. To me, that's, that's success in this product. Because I don't want people paying $5,000 to a marketing agency and not really knowing what they get. I don't want people throwing hundreds of dollars at Facebook ads when they don't know what they're supposed to put in the content. And so I think for me, uh, long term, why we're here is to introduce less ambiguity to the marketing space. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest like potential that AI has, right? That you're able to take industries that haven't been able to be disrupted for, for a long time because of status quo, because of just, you know, because of issues that, 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 that are in the industry and you're able to completely, for lack of a better way of saying it, bend them to their knees because, yeah. you know, with, with, with AI, like the possibilities are really endless and, um, and like commissioning the AI is, is, is far cheaper and far faster than any marketing company. So, uh, it makes a lot of sense getting involved with that. Yeah. It's, you know, it, I, I always blank on what the name of this podcast is. It, it, this was back in like 2013. And the, the core message of the podcast is around like, all right, so if AI in its current research form is going to be successful, like how, how do professionals evolve? Like how, how should professionals uh, tailor their skill set? And, and the answer was surprising and it's starting to play out now, which is there will be the people that have the soft skills. So those people that can do sales or that have people facing roles um, where they need to sell across a bunch of different audiences or convince a lot of different audiences. So basically people that can sell vision or product. And then there's going to be the people that learn how to use all the tools and they effectively become superhuman. So they're a generalist, <laughs> but they have these superhuman tools that can make them an artisan in any field. And so like, you're already seeing that with, with our capabilities for like marketing copy and you're starting to see it for marketing images and you're starting to see it for optimizing content from one platform for another. And, and so like the marketing sphere is probably getting disrupted the quickest, but like it's going to happen with every industry. Like AI yeah. is going to fundamentally change that barrier to entry. Like I'm now able to write marketing copy at the level of someone that has been writing marketing copy for 20 years. Now, do they want to hear that? No, but they will get even more usefulness out of their experience applied to these tools. And that, that's the really cool part. You're evening the playing field, but you're also making everybody better. Which is, which is super exciting to me because I think like a really good example of that is just if we look at software, the software we use every day with applications, yeah. desktop applications, whatever. In the last 20 years, same thing, or maybe not 20 years, but like last 10 years at least, same thing. The, the, the playing field has just been leveled. So anybody can go and deploy an app with, you know, with, with the click of a few buttons and, uh, and, and some basic coding courses. So yeah. it's super exciting to see that come to other different industries because I've seen how much of an impact it's made strictly on, on, on just co commercial software. Uh, yeah. so I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like in the future. Yeah, it's one of those things where like if you're developing software right now and you're not thinking about how AI could enhance or uh, augment or even replace uh, the software you've built, you're likely not doing justice to like where you're trying to go because it's going to transform everything. Right. Yeah, cool. Well, you know, sort of along those lines, I think one of the one of the interesting things with generative AI is, uh, like you mentioned, the capabilities that it has in order to generate content. Uh, but I think some of the 
some of like some of the issues that we've seen or some of the concerns that we've seen uh come to personalization and the human aspect when it comes to the content yeah so i was just wondering when it comes to that uh first of all on, on your platform like how do you guys ensure that the marketers still have enough control or, or businesses still have enough control so that they can create content on your platform while still retaining uh, what makes that content their own? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great question. Uh, honestly, I think it's, it's what is going to differentiate us in the long run. Um, we, we've actually even put a thought leadership piece out there about um, content customization and how we, we view it, because I think it's going to be a stages approach. Um, and sorry for anyone with a sweet tooth that's listening to this, but we effectively describe it as a three layer cake for customization, which is like right. that first plain vanilla layer is what you can do now. You can put in some information about your business that gets pulled into the content, but it still feels a little templated. It, it almost feels like the generative AI like has an idea of this is what I'm going to create and I'm just going to drop this name in there even though that's not how it actually happens, a lot more sophisticated than that. But then the second layer is is that fun one uh, that we're getting pretty close on where it's like, give us a bunch of information about your brand, like what your goals are, you know, what you're trying to do with your content, the stage of your company, the brand name, the product, the product description. Hell, even some content that you've already created that was engaging. And we'll distill that down and kind of bake that into the AI model itself. And so it will create content as if it were you uh, because of the information that you've given in on the front end. So it's no longer a put in one input, get something output. It's a, here's a bunch of inputs at the beginning. And now everything that I create is in that, that flavor. And then the last piece is kind of what we talked about where it's like it, the content itself changes based on the end you in viewers preferences. And that's the icing on the cake as we call it. Now, more to like circling back to your point on like, well, how do marketers have control, right? And how do we ensure that they're still able to be that creative spark, the ghost in the machine, let's call it. Um, and, and so I think that that happens a couple ways on our platform right now. One, we make it super easy for you to put in whatever inputs or thoughts that you have that you want the AI to consider. Uh, that That's one way that they have control. Two uh, is where we find something to be a more iterative, involved process. Uh, we usually introduce some sort of wizard. So a perfect example of this is like all the rage outside of chat GPT right now is one-click blogs. And really one-click blogs is like four sets of text input in one click to get a blog. But we can do like 1800 words. It's all coherent thought. It all follows along the same thinking. It, but we were like, oh, okay, well, that's really cool, but it kind of removes the user from that process. So we introduced the blog wizard and the blog wizard actually goes step by step where it says, all right, this is what I want to write about. These are my target audiences. Okay, here's a set of topics that Charlie recommends based on that. You can make edits, you can add, you can subtract, you can combine. And then once you're good on the topics, you click fetch blog outline. So that goes a level deeper. It takes those topics and headings and goes down into the sub bullet points and adds a little bit more rich text that you can write from and you can make your edits there. And then finally you click fetch blog and it'll take all of that information you've done to that step and it'll create the whole thing. And so what that's doing is giving a level of control to the user that is step-by-step -step building with AI. So if, if you think about this question in the long run, it's going to be making a highly iterative experience where you or I would still be directing the AI but the AI is making super quick, superhuman style editing to that process. A perfect example of this would be with images. You might come to the table and say, hey, I'd like an image of this. And boom, it brings up a brand image. But then you're like, okay, can you make this image evoke this emotion? And the image would get edited by the AI. Or hey, can you change this person's hair color, change this person's laptop, change the background of this image? And the AI is going back and forth there. So. I think for us, control is a matter of, are you making a UI that is iterative and collaborative, or are you making a one-in, one-out experience? And I think the one-in, one-out experience is starting to die off very, very rapidly. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, I, I think one of the areas that people have missed with, with GPT-3 is how deep the filtering really goes. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that comes down to accessibility. Like, it's not apparent where the filters are or the, or the power that you have. Uh, when it comes to filtering so 
having that step-by-step -step process baked into the platform so you can really get down and narrow into the filtering uh, without necessarily having to, you know, have those filters already known or, or you know, go research for it, I think, yeah. I think makes a big difference. It makes a lot of sense of how you guys can uh, make sure it still retains that unique value. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think there's also this question of, like, at what point do we get to a level of trust with AI where we can just connect it up to our socials and have it write the content for us? I think that I don't really want to go there. Yeah. We'll eventually get there. But the idea of having like an AI just connected to all of your shit without any sort of <laughs> checks and balances or human in a whoop to me sounds a little Space Odyssey 2001, yeah. a little... <laughs> little like maybe there's some high risk there but you know someone will inevitably end up doing it and just not telling people and then they'll be like oh my god that was ai the whole time uh yeah. but i i think that the key is how you design the ui ux to where it can maximize the value you're extracting from the ais and its capability but also making it a collaboration right that makes sense yeah i, I actually i'm already um talking about the social media thing i've already seen this on twitter where people have just, uh, you know, they put like three topics on, in, in chat GPT-3, like, hey, I want to talk about technology and like AI or whatever. And it'll just spit out a tweet for them and, and they tweet it. And so people, what they've now been doing is they're trying to reverse engineer. So they're trying to find out like how that tweet came and how the, which topics uh, they, they inputted to get that. Um, so anyway, it's, it's already yeah. becoming a, a reality. It's a little bit scary, but uh, at the same time, it's also exciting. Yeah, it's it's they, there's like this whole black market for uh, prompt engineering and prompts yeah. and recipes is, is kind of what people call them for Jasper, because like we haven't even scratched the surface of what these AI models can do. Like it, just to give everybody like a, a real crazy idea here, like you could theoretically upload the data of every cancer patient ever. And the AI could create its own field of science to create a cure for cancer. Like that, that's the level of craziness that this stuff is going to get to. Uh, so like buckle up your seatbelts. Cause if you thought 2022 was crazy, just get ready. 2023 is going to be nuts in terms of AI. And, and, and we're, my hope is that we start to see it applied to a lot more than just, you know, content creation. That's the most accessible use case, but you're going to start to see, lot more medical use cases that I think will really advance society far beyond what we thought we would be able to do. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've heard a lot of good things about GPT four as well from people who are plugged in. So let's yeah. see let's see let's see what change that brings as well. Um, but I think, you know, going back to that social media or, or that creation aspect, I think, you know, one of the big concerns I think about and, and a lot of people brought up as well is that you know, AI is really optimizing so you can generate the most type of clicks and, and, and just try to get your content as viral as possible. Yeah. But I think one issue I see with that is that a lot of the best advances I've seen in marketing or in content creation have been when a user has, or when a human has taken a risk and it's not necessarily obvious that it's going to go viral or, or that's going to explode like it has. So I was just wondering, like, when you when you think about it from those lines, like, is there any worry that we might become too formulaic with the content and just keep optimizing for clicks that are currently there rather than exploring new areas? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a question I actually think about a lot more than than people might might think that I do. They might just see person sitting there like, how do we create really great content that's going to engage? And and you know that is my goal. I I do want to figure out a formula. And, and the the benefit of figuring out the formula is that like there's less ambiguity in marketing because if there is a formula or there was an exact formula, people would have it figured out. And whoever had that formula for sure figured out would get paid millions of dollars. Right. No one's figured it out. The reason being is the algorithms keep changing and the algorithms keep changing because human preferences change, new technologies come out. But more to your point, like, I think it gets into the philosophical question of like, as these AIs or these AI technologies get better and better, like, is it the death of creativity as we know it? And I, I share your perspective that a lot of the best content is like some creator just thought something was really funny. Like they yeah. saw Zoolander for the first time, I guess in 2022 and decided that Zoolander gifts were coming back. 
And so like that came back in a really funny way. And it's right. like an AI wouldn't be able to sit there and connect like, Hey, that was really funny. I'm going to bring that back. Like that they just wouldn't do it. And so like, I don't think you're ever going to get to a place where an AI does that. It's just, it's not there. And that's why I kind of believe in a human AI collaboration. I don't think, right. I don't think we're headed towards a society where like AI takes over everything, at least not here in, in let me tell you the reason why. So like, think about any hobby that you've wanted to start. Like me personally, I really wanted to learn how to box. I wanted to learn how to surf and I wanted to learn how to scuba dive. Um, I also want to learn how to skydive, but right now I got some entrepreneur weight. So I'm a little heavy for that. So we, we don't, <laughs> we don't skydive. Skydiving's out of the, <laughs> outside of the, the choices, but like Fair enough. <laughs> how, how many of those hobbies have you sat there and been overwhelmed by what it took to start, what it took to like look dumb to start out with in, in that initial 25, 35, 40%. It, 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 I'll, I'll say like there's at least 50 hobbies where I felt that way. I just didn't do it because I was so overwhelmed of like, I need the right gear. I need the right pen. I need the right piece of paper. Who's going to actually read this thing? Doesn't matter if anyone reads this thing. Like I did the same thing with my newsletter. If I had an AI that could at least help me get like two, three sentences in, I've built that momentum. And so for me, I actually think that we're headed into a creative renaissance because no longer is every gonna, everyone going to be beholden to like, well, shit, I haven't taken an art class to learn how to draw. I haven't taken an art class to learn how to code this. I haven't taken a class on how to write newsletters. And so I, I don't know where to go. It's like, hey, this tool actually helps me write newsletters. It can help guide that process and I can learn through the doing at a speed that I previously couldn't. So like, I actually think that, you know, the human process and the human creative mind is going to actually be even more important now because these technologies are really enablers of ideas you already have in your head. They're, They're really just bringing something to life. It's something that exists in your head, even if you don't have it in complete clarity. And so I think that that's like the cool part about this, that you're never going to get rid of that. You have to have the creative spark. It's just the way the creative process looks is going to be much different. The technology will take up a larger part of that, that process, but you're still going to have a need for graphic designers. You're still going to have a need for storyboarders. You're still going to have a need for script writers. It's just the role that technology plays in that is going to be a little bit different. So hopefully that answers the question. I know it was a more philosophical answer than it was the, the is there a formula you know, are people still going to take risks? But I, I think the answer is is kind of one in one with that. Right. No, I, I mean, I, I'm totally with you. And I think um, from a product perspective, now that, you know, my mind's are jogging a little bit on this, it's like, I, I think that's where having tools that allow you to really get what you want to see uh, and, and, and really dive deep into it becomes even more important. Uh, because there's definitely been some like images in my head or some creative drawings in my head that I've wanted to, you know, uh, put on paper, but I really lack the ability to do that. So if there was tools that allowed me to use AI in order to assist me to do that and get exactly what I see in my head onto my screen, um, it can go a long way. And so that, yeah, that, that's definitely really interesting. And I think there's a whole generation of products that are going to come out from this. Yeah. I, I, sky's the limit. Sky yeah. is the limit. <laughs> For sure. Well, you know, tuning a little bit more into the to the investing side of things, and I think you can probably appreciate this, being, being that you were on the investing side uh, some time ago. I know, um, I know a lot of the big hype for the last couple of years before generative AI was like crypto, and uh, and I think you know we've seen a lot of the hype. Of, of course, there's a little bit a lot of stuff that happened in crypto, so we've seen a lot of it now move into generative AI, and I think you know one of the interesting things with the crypto hype was seeing a lot of companies that are sort of just you know, it's trying to trying to see what sticks on the wall, and they just you know, and they and they make a company, they use the technology for a novel way, but it wasn't really a great uh, business plan or anything like that. It was just more of a gimmick to take advantage of the current hype. So I think with generative AI, you know, with the hype that we see, uh, there's a lot of great companies coming out, but I think we're going to see something similar where uh, it's going to be a lot of people just trying to see what sticks. And so I was just wondering for you, what. When we're past this phase, eventually, whenever it happens, and we move on to the next hype machine, what what do you think in the current generative AI sphere will stick around, uh, and, and we'll make it past just the initial hype of just throwing whatever works? Yeah, it's um, 
well, a, a little Easter egg for the people that are listening. Uh, so I, I actually, before I joined this company, was going to start a music NFT platform. Uh, okay. And one of my one of my favorite DJs, Blau, ended up creating probably about 75% of the vision I had for the company. Uh, and it's called Royal.io. Just a really cool, really cool idea, basically making music an investable asset class, which Bowie Bonds, if you're familiar with the music industry, have been around forever. But it's just a really cool way for artists to engage with their fans and have some financial upside for them. Uh, so Royal.io, shameless plug, really cool company. Um, okay. Now, crypto, I think, is going to have to reinvent itself. So let's just leave the crypto thing off here. But as, as we think about generative AI, um, I think one of the, like, your question was, like, what's going to stick around after the hype cycle? Um, I'm still trying to figure out, like, is this, like, my personal position is, like, this isn't a hype cycle. It's just that there's a technology that's so easy to use. Uh, that everybody's becoming an entrepreneur. It's like we we endeavor to make marketing super easy so that everyone can be an entrepreneur and have marketing figured out. GPT-3 was a developer platform that is so easy to use that everyone can literally start to make their own generative AI products and, and they're doing so and you're seeing that happen. Um, so what do I think is going to stay? I, I don't think this is a hype cycle. I think this is something a little bit different. I think this is a a step change in how we view technology and how we view the relationship. So what I think is going to stay is uh, I don't think that the mouse is going to be as important of a part of technology going forward. I think it's going to be very much an iterative text type interface until we find some other way to like touch screen or hand wave or like use your eyes to direct technology. But I think uh, rapid iteration using AI and using guided AI or even AI recommendations, that will stay. That's going to happen for every industry. So we're endeavoring to make a marketing assistant. That's going to happen for every industry, a co-pilot for every industry, as, as people have said. Um, so I think that will stay. I think OpenAI will continue to be one of the most powerful companies going forward. I think that will stay. Uh, I do think uh, one of the things that will go away is open AI is like this monolithic monopolistic uh, power as it pertains to models. I think they're really, really good, but uh, AI 21 is great. I think Google has yet to release to the public any of its models. So one of the things that I think will go away is open AI being like the single source model that gets released out there. Um, it's a really good question because there's like one or two things I want to say. But I don't, I, th I think humans going to stay in the loop. Uh, and what I mean, so for, for, for people on the call that don't know what that means, basically uh, human in the loop is like, you have someone that's using the AI tool and before it would get published anywhere or do some sort of service, there's also a human as part of that process. Um, an important reason for human in the loop images created by AI are technically not copyrightable, but if you can demonstrate that you have edited images using your own process, even though AI was part of that, you can theoretically get copyrighted uh, for, for your works. So human in the loop, I don't think is going away. If anything, it'll probably be more important as we approach the president for this legal issue. Um, and then I think the other thing that's going to go away in light of that same thing is that uh, scraping people's data against their will. Um, so I don't, I, I think Pandora's box has been opened. Like you're never going to get rid of those training data sets that exist on the internet where a bunch of people's publicly posted work is, is training data. I don't right. think you're going to get away from that. But what I do think you're going to get away from is uh, people giving that information away willingly. Um, so I think there will be some overhauls there. Yeah, that's, I mean, super interesting. I think, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it, 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 like you've met, like you mentioned, it's a, it's a big step change. Um, yeah. In the way we think and, and, and the way we interact with AI. And I think, um, I, I, I think we're just going to see a lot of people's personalities, a lot of people's opinions on these type of things change. Uh, similar to when, you know, first social media came out or the smartphones came out and how we saw such a big change there. I really do believe like generative AI has that power right now as well. 
Yeah, uh, like I'm kind of curious what happens to social media platforms in like a AI content driven world. Like there, there was some stat like maybe five percent of content right now is AI created or enhanced, and it wouldn't surprise me if in five years the AI created or enhanced ninety five percent of the content. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how does social interaction online? change as a result of that because the 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 crazy part about it is when you take a step back most of these social media platforms are really just advertising platforms in disguise and so like if we just wet if we just peel back the veil and just say screw it ai is going to create a bunch of ads and sponsored content like how do people interact is that reddit is that you know slack communities i don't i don't know it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves yeah and i mean i think uh you know uh, sort of related to that is like right now we're already seeing a lot of people's social media platforms become hyper focused based on what they currently like or what they currently think um and like and like you sort of alluded to at the beginning like we can start altering content so we start pushing well of course only showing contents towards your users preferences which you already have today but even more so but also altering existing content so it matches what you like um and so, yeah, these, these social media will become can become like a hyper personalized platform for you, which which has good and bad benefits because, of course, you know, good thing is it's probably more along the lines of what you like, but at the same time, you're gonna lose exposure to all these different ideas, which I think is one of the best things about social media, uh, having yeah. a common courtyard for people to have exposure. Yeah, and like, let's think about entrepreneurship in the in, in like a in an AI driven world, like we already see people using like search results and search information driving the type of business that they might create. So like someone's like, Hey, there's a bunch of people in this local area searching for like custom wine openers or like Coravin alternatives or something like that. And they start a business based off of that. Well, like now is search actually going to drive an AI to say, hey, you should create this type of business in that local economy because all the data that you're feeding me is indicating that there's a need here. And, and then like people drive it off of that. And then like, does a creator economy die? I, I, there's like so many questions that like start to like get peeled back if you start to think about it that way. Cause it's like, if AI becomes the driver and like the recommendation engine and telling you what to do, like, do we have a creator economy that's more like I'm creating this because AI told me I should and it'll get more engagement. And then there's another side of the creator economy that's just like, I really love corn. And so I'm going to make content about corn. It's like, it's going to be interesting to see how, like, how that all evolves. Like how much are we going to be looking to the AI for recommendations versus just following our own intuitions and interests? Yeah. I mean, related to that, I know there's a lot of talk right now about AI content creators too, just having an AI create content and, and, and just, you know, and, and upload it and people follow them like AI influencers. And that's a whole nother realm that I don't even want to think about because of the implications of what that could be. But you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Dude, I was at a festival, like the, literally the first conference that I went to for Go Charlie. I had no idea what I was doing. I got invited for free and I was like, hell yeah, I'll find out in LA and talk to people for, for free. Right. And I brought it's it's hilarious. I brought this like mechanical dog that dances, and people thought we were making robot dogs. Like they thought that was <laughs> our product. And it fortunately it was great because it got so many people to our table. But I start walking around and I go meet these people, and they're like, "Yeah, so we we make virtual influencers." And I'm like, yeah. "Tell me more about what that means." And we we get into it, and they're like, "Yeah, so basically we like engineered this lady. Her name's Rebecca. She's 15 years old." And she's really anxious and she finds yoga and meditation and that helps her with all of her anxiety. And so we found people that, that, that resonates with them as an audience. And then once we figured that out and engineered that, that we go find a brand that wants to market to that demographic and we give that product to them. And I was like, Oh my God, do you guys realize what you are saying? Like you're engineering problems into a fictitious being so that people relate to that fictitious being and then manipulating that into selling a product. And like, I then started to realize that was kind of the regular influencer industry as well. But like, it just felt so wrong on like so <laughs> many levels. 
But then I'm, I'm sitting there thinking as a brand, I'm like, well, at least I don't have to worry about them like cheating on their wife. I don't have to worry about this virtual influencer like running their car uh, through a red light and getting in a drunk driving accident because they don't do that because they're virtual influencers. And I'm like, oh, man, it just gets you down this path of like, are humans the problem? Are we effectively just admitting at this point? Like, yeah, humans are the problem. Screw it. Let's get rid of them. Like that. That's not fun. Um Virtual influencers scare me. Sorry, that was a random tangent, but it's- no, 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 no. I mean, I, I'm 100 with you. It's it's so scary. Like I, the the thing is, like I understand, I can see both sides. Like you like you mentioned there, but it's just so weird to me having people attach. I mean, I guess we have that today too. Like people are attached to virtual characters like Mario and Sonic and stuff like that. But like just that being another level. Where it's like you you really eliminate the human behind that, and it's just like like it's not obvious or it's just not there. I don't know. It's it's just really scary. I, I don't know what to say. Like it's um yeah yeah. Um, but I I guess actually sort of relating to that uh you, in that story you mentioned the you, so you mentioned that dog the mechanical dog, and so I know a lot of your branding uh is is around Charlie who's the mechanical dog. And even on product hunts, I know a lot of people are like, uh, "Oh man, the dog's so cute! I love your branding, all of that." So I was just wondering, like, is that is that where, like, you you had the idea to have Charlie as a branding for your platform, or was that before? Like, how how did you get to that? So like, this would normally be the part where I say that Charlie stands for this really cool like compute computer human augmentation reality something or other like that okay. there's some really cool acronym i tried i tried really hard to make that acronym when i first started i give coasts all these ideas uh, initially easter egg for the listeners uh we were called gaudium g-a-u-d-i-u-m dot a-i uh okay. and that's latin for joy because we wanted to build ai experiences that were joyful tell me how i spelled gaudium again <laughs> I think it's, (laughs) no one knows how to spell Gaudium and no one knows how to say it. Like I I heard Gaudium pronounced in like probably 85 different ways. And so we were like, well, crap, we can't have that be the brand name if we're going to do more of a a B to small B play to start out. And so Charlie is the name of uh, Kostas' dog. Um, okay. and, and so like, that's, that's just the story behind it. Uh, tr- now, Charlie was also the name of our own AI models that we were building. Um, that's and so we were like, well, should we just make the product Charlie and have that be the company name? And so that's, that's where we got to it. But then the, the branding itself is amazing. So like the most engaging thing on planet earth is puppies. If you ever need engagement in real life, bring puppies, you'll win every right. time. Uh, but more importantly, like. There's so many punny, fun things you can say about training AI models and training dogs. It's literally like the same process. Like you teach a dog how to do a trick by showing it how to do the trick and rewarding it for doing the trick correctly. The same thing happens with AI models. You tell it to create a Facebook ad and every time it creates a good Facebook ad, you give it a treat. It rewards it, figures that out, programs that into its logic and boom, there you go. So like... Training a dog, training AI models, basically the same thing. <laughs> right. No, it makes sense. Um, <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it, it seems to be working. Like, I, I would like, of course, I already just comment with the product on uh, product hunt, but so many people are also commenting on the branding. And I, like, I, wow, I know. So, great. like, there's, there's some people that love it, right? Like, there's some people that really love the dog brand. And then I had some guy that just went on this tirade in our Facebook community. He's like, this isn't a good product. It looks like you got someone to design it off of Fiverr. And I like, I just straight up told him, yeah, I found someone on Fiverr that made this and it was <laughs> awesome and people love it. Like what problem do you have against it? And it's like, you should be a sophisticated AI brand. And I was like, you should get the hell out of my Facebook community. And he, he was gone. Uh, but more importantly, it's like, if you're going to be a marketing company, then you better damn well be sure that whatever you're bringing to the table from a branding standpoint is fire. Like, Right. If, if people are going to believe that you're going to make engaging content for them, then you better damn well have the most engaging, cute, cuddly brand that people are going to want to play with. And I think right. more importantly, one of the positions that we've tried to establish for ourselves is like, we want the product to be fun. Like first and foremost, we want it to be powerful, but second, we want it to be fun because I, we, all of us came from jobs where we were burnt out and just, we're not having fun at work. And there's been times where we felt that way with this company, but one of the 
the beautiful parts is that anytime I felt burnt out, I can go to our product and I play around with it and it's just fun. And like right. a, if a, for a product to be really, really solid in my mind, for it to really be powerful, it has to re-engineer the way you feel about work. And I think that's what we're doing. And so the way I say it is content creation is fun. It, it make content creation as fun as playing with a puppy. And I think we're getting pretty close. Um, right. So the, the, the dog branding is a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, well, related to marketing, I know like right now, GoCharlie seems to be entering the rapid growth phase. Right now, you're trying to get users onto the platform, try to build on the platform and just keep on growing. So I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts when it comes to growth. Uh, what are some strategies that, you know, you, you think about for GoCharlie to showcase your value to the market? Yeah, yeah. So for us, um, you know, I think there's some macro trends going on uh, as it pertains to growth for, for everyone, which is like the effectiveness of paid ads is just not where it used to be. It's no longer this like magic trick where you can just put a whole bunch of money behind it and you'll be able to catch, cast a really big net. Uh, so what that means is like, you need to have better content, but you also need to like in this, in this sea of AI tools, we've really had to define like, who are we going to be um, and how is our product going to develop? And, and an important thing is like investors care about what your product's going to become. Customers care about your product and what it is today and maybe what it's going to be tomorrow. And so you have to be able to manage those different perspectives and those different needs. Reason being is like, if you're trying to build something that's going to take a month and a half to build. And so there's this lull period, how are you going to keep people entertained in that month and a half when competitors are probably going to be launching other things? So for us, I think it was, you know, finding the right audience and, and just in finding the right traction channel and farming that for as much as humanly possible. You know, Product Hunt was a really great top of funnel, but it wasn't a great conversion engine. And so what we did is we learned a lot from that. We learned, hey, this feature was really cool and people liked the potential of it, but they didn't like a lot of the other things that our platform had because it wasn't the right audience. So what we do, we re-engineered our process to go find those right audiences in different Facebook groups, different Slack communities. I would say that there are so many ways that you can find potential customers before you resort to paid ads that I would encourage people to exhaust every possible option before they before they go into that. Because once you have like this, this core customer base that really loves you, they become your feedback channel, they become your product roadmap, but they also become your best marketing engine. And so product-led growth is kind of like the soup du jour these days, but like it's super powerful if you've, if you've done it right. A hundred customers that are going to give you feedback are better than 10,000 customers that are just going to silently participate and not tell you anything. And like right. that might be contrary to thought, but like if you really want to grow, go find the people that are going to be super passionate about growing it, give them use of the product, get them playing with it and like talk to them. Like in the early days, you just have to do the stuff that doesn't scale and talk to customers. And you, you got to kind of check your ego at the door too, because I think we've built a really powerful product, but the p way that people use our products is fascinating to me because half the time it doesn't even end up being the way that we've engineered the product to be used, which right. is nuts but you have to be open to those types of things and if, if you're just like hey that's not how you're supposed to use that then you know you're stifling their innovation and you're stifling the ability to be flexible but i think for growth my my best piece of advice is like start with connecting with people before you even go anywhere near paid ads because you can lose a whole lot of money on paid ads very early on in the company's life cycle if you're not careful Right. And I think, you know, you sort of mentioned this earlier, but I think one other aspect that's really popped up the last uh, three, four years is the community aspect. Yeah. Uh, so I know a lot of like companies, even startups who does have like a hundred users will have like discord communities and Slack communities so they can get that feedback quick and, and their users they're, are, are, are part of the process throughout. So it becomes really a lot easier to get the, go through that iterative process of building up the product and as well as, um, and ha as well as connecting with the community of users that you have there. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the, what the newest startups are going to be like uh, because of that, because I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. I'm the whole idea of community and like where the proper place to have your community is a very interesting, like top of mind thing for me as well. Like, I don't think every product needs community, but I do think that products that really want to supercharge growth will find a way 
for people to have community around your product. So like maybe that's a Discord, maybe that's a Slack, or maybe someone finds a no-code solution where you can just embed it into your own platform, uh, right. but then you have to maintain it. But it like just in the early days, the benefits far outweigh far outweigh the cost. Now you do have to like maintain that community. You do have to talk to that community. I talk to our community every single Thursday and I try to post every single day if I can. And it's like, they're, they're basically my friends. Like I talk to them about big accomplishments in the company, but I also talk to them about like, you know, Hey, our product falls short here. Here's something that you should try. Um, so I think you gotta, you should have a strategy of how you plan to use the community because having community just for community's sake is, it's kind of hollow. Like it need you need to have some goals for for how you're going to use it. Right, right. That makes sense. Makes sense. Well, it was great learning about Go Charlie. I'm super excited to uh, see you know the future of it and um, and yeah, it's really exciting stuff. Uh, but sort of moving on, I, I guess sort of coming to the end of the podcast. You know, one other area that was super interesting about your experience to me was your background at Space Ventures. Yeah. Um, and I think especially in the last five years, we've really seen commercial space companies take off. Um, but I think what's really interesting about space companies in particular and investing in them is that, you know, they're very high capital, long payoff investments compared to more traditional investments, which uh, can be high capital, but, you know, a lot of them have a lot of a shorter, a lot of a shorter payoff timeline. So I was just wondering when it comes to your investment philosophy for investing in space companies, like how, how do you base your investment philosophy there when you, when you're approaching space companies? Yeah. So space ventures was a super interesting, uh, play for me. So at the time I, the, I was going through the morning brew, uh, learning brew accelerator. They was actually their first cohort. Uh, so morning brew is a newsletter on like pretty much any topic under the sun. One of the best new modern media brands. And so they diversified into learning. Uh, so I participated in that program. And uh, at the time I was at SoftBank, I was doing some diligence for deals and this guy reached out to me and he's like, hey, uh, I'm building something interesting in your space, space pun intended. Um, what uh, could you chat? And so we get on the call and he tells me about how he had this like 3 million person Pinterest following and just like all this crazy stuff that he's done with space. And he just turned that community. He's like, what, what could I do with this? It would be meaningful. And he turned it into building the AngelList for uh, space uh, investing. Okay. So a lot of people don't know, but like there's five companies that get 99.9% .9 of all space capital, all, all venture capital invested into space. There's like five companies. And as you can imagine, most of it's SpaceX, Blue Origin, a couple others. Uh, but it's like, do you think that those guys are full stack like space development companies? Like, no, they have to have special software. They have to have special hardware. Uh, problems that will evolve in space, such as like swarm mining of asteroids, like those types of companies need to be built. And you have to have the people that are willing to take uh, bets on it. And so I, I was fascinated by the space. I, I One, I love anything that makes like investing accessible to every person because I think accredited investing requirements are just ridiculous. Um, that's, a, we can do a whole separate podcast on that. Um, so that's, that's really motivated me is this guy was looking at space and he said, there's economic opportunity here. And I think space will be likely the largest economic opportunity, not only in our lifetime, but of the next three lifetimes, if not more. Uh, and I was like, Hey, I want to be a part of that. So I put some capital in, uh, but as it pertains to like making investment decisions, cause space ventures is really cool. They bring companies to the platform for people to invest in. They actually did a $25 million uh, commitment for a crowdfunding round in SpaceX. Really, really cool initiative that they did. And they actually got space, SpaceX to play ball. Um, but for me, I think space investing is such an interesting dichotomy because most of, as you said, it's a long tail, right? So like if you were just investing in a company that was going to do some sort of tech in space, it's like, well, it's limited to how many flights are going into space. Like their growth is capped. But what's actually happening is a lot of people are developing these technologies that could be useful in space, but will are grounded in a current use case on planet Earth. So like swarm mining, as I was just uh, uh, talking about, like swarm mining for asteroids would be necessary because you have to be able to mine really, really quickly. So you have these swarm robots that move around as, as a hive mine. Well, you could take that exact same protocol and apply that to coal mining. 
or apply it to uh, mining any sort of resource on Earth. And so the interesting thing that you see with these space companies when you invest in them is that they're finding applications for the technology they want to build in the current Earth environment. Uh, and then when the infrastructure is better positioned for space, they've already got a lead in terms of capital and a revenue stream that's powering them to be able to take those venture uh, shots. So it's a really, it's a really interesting thing. It's like you're investing in a space venture that's got groundedness in the earth for lack of a better uh, a pun or analogy to be made. But yeah, that that's what interests me about space is just like, there's literally no way to invest in a space company and not be thinking five to 10 years down the road. And so it encouraged me to be a longer term uh, thinker as it pertains to investments. No, I mean, that's super exciting. And I never, I, I never thought about it from that perspective is that, I mean, yes, of course, there's a lot of stuff that's pertinent to space, but it can also be pertinent to earth today as well. So uh, that makes sense in terms of gaining, you know, traction and, and, and getting favor for investment. Uh, and, and that's super exciting. So I think, you know, a sort of follow-up to that actually is that, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, of course, commercial space flight is huge and you mentioned swarm mining there. Uh, and I think that's a lot of what a lot of, like, I think that's a lot of what people are focusing on right now. So I was just wondering, based on your time in space ventures and, and, and you know, getting these uh, different ventures onto the platform, uh, do you think there's a field within space that isn't getting enough coverage right now, but is really, it's going to become big in the future? Hmm. I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of fields. Um, I, I mean, I, I always come back to like, you know, the, the basics, like the unsexy technologies. Like I, I don't think there's been a whole lot of uh, innovation in like, you know, food and hygiene products as it pertains to space. It's just like, okay, we're limited because you can't cook anything in space. Well, it's like, well, yeah, but there's like lots of, there like, if, if you're going to support civilization as we know it growing in space, you probably need to figure that shit out. Like, right. like we, we used to sell like prime rib on airplanes and now we sell like these microwaves packages. And I'm like, we're going the wrong direction here, guys. So <laughs> I think like that, that's somewhere where I would like to see someone innovate because then it's going to force function. You have to innovate in the airline industry for that right. same space. But perhaps that's a selfish pursuit. <laughs> No, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny how you're saying we go backwards. Like, you know, as much as we go forward and as much as there's some super cool technologies, in a lot of other areas, I feel, sometimes I feel like, what what are we doing? Like, I think the traditional ways is the way to go. And we're just uh, over-innovating for the sake of over-innovating sometimes. But, yeah, know, it's, it, it yeah, it's like, you know, SpaceX. We thought we were all going to have, like, reliable airplane Wi-Fi. But the time that it's taken to transition to that I think it's caused me to think, do I even want reliable airplane Wi-Fi? Because it's kind of the one place where I could be not connected and be like, hey, sorry, I was on a plane. Right, right. Makes sense. Um, well, perfect. Well, you know, it's been a great podcast. I really enjoyed having you on. Before I let you go, I have two last questions. So yeah. the first one being, uh, is there a book or a piece of content that you recommend us checking out? Oof, there, there's a lot. I'm trying to think of something that I've read. <laughs> recently that, that I found super impactful. Um, oh, where is it? I, I literally have it right here somewhere. I just cleaned the house, so it's it's changed a little bit. Um, no worries. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I think maybe it's still right here, is it? Nope. Okay, it's not there. Um, algorithms to live by. Okay. Uh, it's a really interesting book. It was wrote about a decade ago. I, I read it about a decade ago, but it's a really interesting uh, thought exercise on like algorithms that exist in real life mm -hmm. and the applications of different types of algorithms. So I think the first chapter is about like dating and how to like optimize dating protocols. And it like calls into question like, hey, uh, this type of algorithm, you can't actually go back to previously found options which is kind of the dating algorithm. So it's like, if you know that you want to be married by this age and you think about this, uh, so like this is about the prime space that you should be thinking of, hey, I probably need to pick one of the next two or three people that I meet in this space if I want to achieve this goal. And I thought it was a super fascinating way of like trying to introduce rational algorithmic thinking to things that are very often not rational. Like another thing is like closed sorting. So like 
theoretically you put all your different clothes in like different shelves, right? Like shirts, socks, shoes. Well, actually the most efficient way is to take all the stuff that you wear the most and throw it all in one drawer. Right. And I, like it, like when I thought about it, it, blew my mind. So like that, that's just a really fun way to start to think about life and like rational algorithmic thinking versus like, you know, things that probably shouldn't have rational algorithmic thinking applied to them. So that's, that's a really fun book that I've read. Uh, second, just bonus points. Uh, I really like the book, The Fountainhead, which a lot of people are going to roll their eyes, but The Fountainhead, I think is one of the coolest explorations of a fictitious character in their pursuit of their own uh, greatness. Um, it does have some political undertones, but I think it's a fascinating read. Definitely check it out. Cool. Yeah, no, I'll make sure to check both of them out. Uh, the algorithms live by, I think that one, especially like, uh, I, yeah, I never thought about that. You're right. You're hundred percent right. Like whatever clothes you wear most frequently is probably what you should probably have it on top. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'll definitely go check that out. Uh, and, and the fountain, I, I haven't actually heard of that, but uh, I'll, I'll check that one out too. But yeah, um, perfect. Well, you know, to end off, the last question I have is, what's the next steps for you and Go Charlie? What can we look forward to? Yeah, um, I think twenty twenty three is going to be really exciting. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about where the industry is going to go, um, and who's going to win, and how they're going to win. Um, and I think we've picked a really great strategy. At, uh, to focus on like customization, to focus on goals, to focus on um, bringing together different modalities of content all in one platform. And so I think 2023 next steps is just going to be like building on that vision, bringing it to reality and showing users how it's, it's the best on the market. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully that means that a lot of our competitors fall away and we, we establish a brand name for ourselves. I think you know, our product's been in the market less than a year and already we have a pretty rabid following. So it's just finding more cheerleaders for, for Charlie. Perfect. Well, I'll put all the links down below. So if you guys want to check it out, feel free to check it out. And um, thank you so much, Brennan. I really enjoyed having this conversation and really look forward to seeing what comes up next. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's It's been a lovely chat. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, Twitter and LinkedIn are probably my most used platform. So hit me up. Perfect. Well, thanks, everyone. Take care.